Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to yet another episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Yes, with those supplementary Ex Libris episodes once a month, time seems flying by. And this is now already episode number seven of our season three. And altogether, it is already the 35th release on Thoth Hermes. Quite incredible. It is September now, folks. September the 1st, 2019, in fact. The summer draws towards its end and somehow I'm always tempted to count years starting in September, not in January. Might be an old habit of mine since school years, a very long time ago. Oh, sorry, I forgot to introduce me. My name is Rudolf and as always, I am your host. Throughout all those 35 episodes so far, Thoth Hermes podcast has brought and will keep bringing to you long and hopefully interesting interviews with people who have something to say in regards to the world of the Western esoteric tradition, the occult and the paranormal worlds. That is because they have made personal experiences, because they are teachers or authors, all of them are real personalities. Thought Hermes can be found on all major podcast outlets like Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, to name just a few. And now also all previous and of course all new episodes are available on YouTube in audio versions only, but some of you prefer to listen there. Here you go. Are you one of those who are listening directly from the Thoth Hermes website? Well, thank you, because that way you can also see the whole bandwidth of our previous episodes. You can access them all from there, but you can also see the show notes and use all the links, which will save you, believe me, quite some time of research. And you can use the website to send me a message via the contact form or you can even send me a voicemail for free. And while you're there, why don't you subscribe to our free newsletter? Go to thoshermes.com, that is D-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. Email is info at thoughtshermes.com and also check our Facebook and Twitter accounts. While you're there, why don't you consider becoming a patron on Patreon? As all podcasts, also Thoughts Hermes has its running costs. And if you like what you hear, why don't you make a small effort 
which in the summing up of all your joint efforts will help me pay for the production and maintenance costs. If you prefer to do a one-off donation, then use the donation button on the website. Otherwise, there's a Patreon link or you go directly on the Patreon site and check out Toss Hermes, make your contribution there, starting as low as $2 per episode. And new patrons can, until September 8, still enter the draw for a free pair of tickets for this year's Black Flame Conference in Montreal, Canada, October 11 to 13. Do not miss this opportunity before time is running out in a week. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it and need it. And here comes the message from our sponsor. Anathema Publishing Limited Quality Occult Books and Contemporary Esoterica Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a triune relationship between publisher, author and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian philosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com Our guest on today's episode comes from New Zealand. It is a great pleasure for me to talk to Hermeticist, Alchemist, Author and Teacher Rubafilos Salfluere. He was an alchemy student with the last New Zealand graduate student of the famous alchemist Frater Albertus. He has graduated with the qualification of a psychotherapist he is Bachelor of Science. We will hear more about him in a while and especially much more from him. As on most of our shows, also today I'm going to play some music for you. Today we are going to talk a lot about alchemy and hermetics, so I thought it would be a good idea to play music from someone who is maybe not directly related to those two forms of the esoteric arts, but who was a really great figure in the history of Western occultism, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff. He was not only a teacher and occultist, but he has also written quite a number of musical pieces. Well, written, this is exactly where the detail lies. He played most of his music, which he created, on the accordion, but he wasn't able to write it down. So he used the services of a friend, Thomas Alexandrovich de Hartmann, who was a composer himself and also from Russia, and who took the care of writing Gurdjieff's inspiration on music sheets. And this is how this music was preserved for us today. As in each episode, we are going to hear three pieces. 
Today it's all piano pieces and the first one that we're going to hear now is called The Big Seven by George Gorgiev.
A Big Seven, composed and written by George Gurdjieff and Thomas de Hartmann, a real esoteric piece of music. Now, Thoth Hermes carries you to the Southern Hemisphere, so we are going to speak to a very seriously active occultist, hermeticist, alchemist, author and teacher, Rubafilos Salfluere. Some of you might know his YouTube channel, where he explains Hermetism and especially alchemy in great detail. And if you don't know it yet, you really should have a look at this. It's a great source of inspiration and teaching. You will find all the links on the website, on the web notes. As always, we will first talk about Rubofil's personal background, about his personal history, so to speak, in the Hermetic Arts. And then very quickly, we go deep into his very interesting views on the matter itself. Why lab alchemy? What does mainstream versus underground stream occultism mean? How does the Western tradition differ from the Eastern, etc.? Our talk was so interesting that I made it a little longer than usual, so you will be enjoying 75 minutes of Ribophilos. As usual, there will be a musical break, this time after about 40 minutes. So, without further ado, come with me and meet Rubafilos Salfluere. Here comes the interview. So this week on the Thoth Hermes podcast, I'm very happy to have uh, the opportunity to speak to a guest who, from my point of view here in Austria, comes from very far away, from the other side of the world, so to speak, from New Zealand. And it's a great pleasure to have you, Ruba Filo Salsueri, here on the waves of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Good morning to New Zealand. It's late evening here. Good morning to you over there. Yes, it's early morning here, and good morning to you. Uh, good evening to you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, great to have you. Um, uh, I've asked you before, so I may say Ruba in the interview, not to have to Ruba feel us all the time, but um, um, I have met you, so to speak, first through your YouTube channel and through the great, great videos that you're doing there, yeah. which I can only recommend to everybody uh, who is interested in alchemy or hermetics or even the occult in general, to, to go there and have um, a look because it's really great. And I'll post also the link on my uh, show notes. But so, Ruba Filos Salfluere, that's definitely a pseudonym, and um, we leave it like that. But would you tell us, Ruba, um, what your personal background as far as you want to go is, especially in regards, of course, to alchemy and to hermetics. What brought you there? How early in your life did you start looking into those arts? What interested you and what did you bring there where you are today with it? What's your background? Okay, so I think it, like a, a lot of people, I had a sort of cursory interest in things esoteric when I was very young but it wasn't until I was about uh, 20, 21 um, where I came across the books of Carlos Castaneda 
who uh, was very well known in the 60s and maybe early 70s, but may not be so well known today. But he was uh, quite famous because he was doing a PhD in anthropology and got himself involved in interviewing a, a Native American or a Native Mexican shaman uh, who he was introduced to by a friend and then became very famous because uh, Carlos Castaneda wrote a series of books about his involvement with this guy. So the first book of his I came across was A Separate Reality. And um, before I read that book, I had never come across the concept of systematic or organized esoteric training before. And I hadn't even really thought of the concept of being trained by somebody or studying uh, in an orderly fashion esoteric knowledge. So that was very new to me and was quite a surprise. And um, for some reason, as soon as I uh, was aware of that concept, I just wanted to get involved in some kind of esoteric training. Um, and I had no idea whether such a thing existed in the West, but it wasn't long before I met a guy who had a large collection of uh, Western esoteric literature. And, of course, then I became aware that, of course, in the West, it's actually quite a big system that there are a lot of different groups and organizations who teach this kind of stuff much to my joy at the time um, <clears throat> so then I went on a sort of a two or three year journey of joining different groups such as um, the ancient mystical order Rose Crucius or Armork in America yeah, and then uh, Builders of the Aditum and while I was sort of feeling my way through all that stuff and building up a picture of how Western esoteric culture uh, delivers information in a tuition format. Um, my girlfriend and I had booked uh, a session with a woman who was a local professional astrologer. And during my conversation with that woman, uh, I can't even remember how it happened, but we ended up talking about alchemy, uh, something which I didn't know very much about at the time. And she said to me at the end of our um, session together, if I, well, she asked me if I was interested in meeting somebody who was involved in alchemy and who might be interested in teaching me, which gave me a bit of a shock and surprise. So I, so I said, yeah, but at the same time, I had also discovered through this guy who had a lot of esoteric books and I was reading my way through his library that he was buying these books from a local esoteric bookshop in a small village about 12 miles away from where I was living at the time. And I had been going in there and spending all my spare money on uh, everything I could get my hands on at the time. And it took me about three or four months wondering what had happened about this contact this woman was going to give me before um, I suddenly realized that it was the woman who owned the bookshop who and she was she was sitting waiting she knew who I was but I had no idea who she was 
And one day it suddenly dawned on me when I started buying books on alchemy and she became a lot more interested in why I wanted to read books and what I knew about it. And so that's really how I started my education in laboratory alchemy. Um, And it just so happened that uh, I was extremely fortunate in meeting her and it was very fortuitous because not only was she the last practicing laboratory alchemist in New Zealand and living very close to where I was living at the time, um, but she also was living in a small village called Havelock North, which is where the old Ra temple of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was founded. So she had been running her bookshop and being involved in the esoteric community while Fiery Ra was still active and so knew a lot of those people. So meeting her gave me a, a, immediate access to all that kind of information and a lot of very interesting people and groups as well, local small groups that weren't known really outside of the Bay Area. So that was how I got started with uh, studying laboratory alchemy. Um, and she didn't originally intend in it teaching me. She was hoping to palm me off on um, a guy in Australia who was willing to come to New Zealand and train people at the time. The important thing about her, though, was when I say she was the last practicing laboratory alchemist in New Zealand, Uh, She had studied with the famous um, American alchemist Frada Albertus. Right, yeah. Yeah, she had graduated from his seven-year classes and she had also been his aide-de-camp here in New Zealand when he very first came to New Zealand in 1969. So she knew him very well. Um, so the system that she was training me was basically the same system he had trained her in. And that apprenticeship for me ended up being about nine years before she had taught me everything that she had learned while she was being involved with Frater Albertus's organisation at the time. So you have, must have been well, must have felt very lucky to be kind of have been thrown into a bath almost um, because um, yeah I mean have an alchemy trend lab alchemy is not something that you would find that easily be it in New Zealand or elsewhere I guess to find a teacher and a good teacher uh, uh, of all places um, so that you must have felt very lucky about that but 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 why lab alchemy because most people who start like you mentioned and I think I know what I'm talking about because funny enough um, the Castaneda books I I maybe am a few years older than you but uh, uh, the Castaneda books also at my time were kind of an entry door for many of us and for me in Europe it was also Rudolf Steiner uh, so it was those two right yeah so uh, that entry door um, was there but now I know what lab alchemy is, but I wouldn't, at least in the first 15, 20 years, you wouldn't have come to the idea, even though hermetics and ceremonial magic, Amork and Bota that you both mentioned, were very interesting to me as well, etc. But I wouldn't have come to my mind to, to search a laboratory alchemist to teach me. What, 
was it just the meeting with her that initiated that or did you have some a, a, a attraction to that f right from the beginning no when i when i met the um woman who was the astrologer who introduced me to my teacher and she brought up the subject of laboratory alchemy only because she knew my teacher i knew nothing next to nothing about it right of course i had read a lot of general western esoteric literature and i knew the word and i knew that alchemy was like a, a substantial part of the old tradition but i really had no idea what it was mm -hmm. uh, so after i'd had that session with the astrologer one of the first things i did is went and bought some books on it and started reading it and honestly i went from knowing absolutely nothing about it to reading the very first book i read on the subject i just immediately clicked with it and just thought this is ex exactly the kind of thing that i want to get involved in mm -hmm. so there was no pre-interest at all but the moment that i was actually introduced to detailed information about the subject i just couldn't get enough of it and i understood and i understood it. otherwise if that hadn't happened to me i would have been in a similar situation to you i would have probably yeah. joined things like bota and heard a lot about alchemy but i would have only really had a a very superficial understanding like most people do of the subject and certainly would never have have come in contact with anybody probably until you know 10 years into being on the internet or something once it first right came. Which at the yeah. time uh, probably wasn't around in that in that no, sense it wasn't. That you couldn't go on there and we couldn't have been able to do what we're doing just now at no. the time yeah exactly mm. yeah so when um, i when i first met my teacher there was no internet at all and not even a whisper of it so i was you know being right down at the bottom of the world here we're extremely yeah. geographically isolated from the rest of the world so all i had was access to my teacher and to the fact that she had a bookshop and could get her hands on any kind of literature cheaply for me yeah. so that's all i had in the way of source material well, you were lucky to have that yeah great yeah yeah um talking about alchemy so and lab alchemy um as opposed not as opposed no that's the wrong word but set in context or, or in contrast maybe um with the inner with the spiritual with the psychological uh, approach of alchemy which is the one that most people who work in the occult and ceremonial magic surroundings do um how would you set the relationship between the two of them and why do you personally think that both of them or, or lab alchemy is so important to be also done actively what what's the difference when you do that so when i first became involved in the study of alchemy in general of course mm. primarily my teacher was teaching me laboratory alchemy but like most people at, at her time they uh well not not actually most people but most people in the circles that she moved in also thought of alchemy as being a spiritual internal esoteric thing but unfortunately one of the problems that uh, developed very early on because of the way frater albertus presented alchemy to the world because for those people who are listening who aren't aware he was really the first man in um, modern history to re-reveal 
what alchemy was all about actually rather than theoretically and what most general Western occultists believed it to be. Uh, unfortunately, one of the things about him was that he had really no idea about what uh, internal alchemy was or spiritual alchemy or inner alchemy. Uh, and so this, that system or that side of the system that he was teaching his students was very poor and very superficial. And so a lot of people leaned toward trying to understand what that might be about through Carl Jung's uh, work, because he really at that time was the only person who had kind of made a serious attempt at um, taking the laboratory tradition theory and philosophy and uh, overlaying it onto human psychology and therefore found himself moving in the direction of a spiritual journey which a lot of occultists recognised had happened to him but still there was no real understanding of exactly how alchemy fitted into an internal journey Mm -hmm. and it wasn't really until uh more occultists, who people who were interested generally in Western occultism, started studying human psychology, that people have started thinking more carefully about what it is that alchemy might have in common with uh, the inner work and particularly with spiritual self-development. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other problems, while all this has been sort of stewing away in the background and um, trying to sort itself out, is that a lot of Westerners who are looking for spiritual self-development, who turn towards an Eastern and mystical view of things, um, affected the Western tradition, was that there's a lot of overlap between people who studied Eastern mysticism and were also interested in Western occultism. And in Eastern mysticism, particularly in Taoism, but a a little bit in Tantra um, from India, the concept of alchemy is talked about a lot, but there's no uh, in-depth explanation or understanding of the relationship between Eastern ideas and practices and the concept of alchemy. So that's confused the situation a lot more because a lot of people over the years while I've been teaching, I've had a lot of students um, come to me who have been involved in Eastern concepts and practices who want to be involved in the Western tradition and then end up trying to mix the two things together and they get it becomes a very messy kind of a situation Mm -hmm. because Eastern concepts on the nature of alchemy do not at all easily uh, fit together with what the Western tradition understands about alchemy which is a, a vastly more detailed, complex and developed understanding of alchemy than has ever been available in the East. For some reason, in the Western tradition, alchemy became a very important thing and developed uh, 
mm. deeply over the, the last 800 years where it never really did that well in the Eastern tradition. So as far as the connection between the two things, the basic philosophy is very simple. The, the idea being, as um, part of the Hermetic tradition, a, a key concept in the Hermetic tradition is that everything comes from one source. And that one source divides itself into uh, two facets of itself, which then, in a human being, are um, manifested as our external world and our internal world, or physics and psychology, basically, the two sides of human experience. And so because both of these sides of our experience come from the same source, it means that the same rules and laws govern both the world of physics and the world of psychology. They don't look the same on a superficial level, but because they have the same source, then they are governed by the same rules, um, if you like. Right. And what Hermetism teaches and alchemy and spe specifically teaches is that those rules and laws which are universal to both physical reality and to uh, internal reality are alchemical laws and therefore we can practice laboratory alchemy uh, messing around with glassware and chemicals and everything and demonstrate how those universal laws are present mm -hmm. in physical matter. And we can also practice internal alchemy and show how those same rules are also present in the mind, but they uh, superficially look different than the way they manifest in physical reality. Right. So the end conclusion of all that is that, and this concept is not um, unknown in mainstream or popular Western occultism, it's quite a well-known concept, and that is that just as there's an external philosopher's stone and elixir of life, therefore there must be an internal philosopher's stone and elixir of life, and that it's kind of a personal choice or predilection about which path a person who is interested in alchemy might choose to follow, whether they want to get to the goal through the physical pathway or through the internal pathway. Right, so it's a choice really which way to go, is what you're saying, right? Yeah, it can be yeah. a choice or like with me, you kind of, some people find themselves thrust into an interest mm. in one side or the other yeah or the other. yeah right um, you have partly i think partly answered the question that i had in mind next um but maybe you you, you can extend that a little bit i was going to ask because it seems in the documents that i i have read and and i uh, have followed your your group uh, a little bit online lately and that the words alchemy and hermetic if they are not interchangeable that would be too far-fetched but they are often used in the very same thinking and context now how you explained alchemy and what the inner and the outer view on it 
meant and is the same and not the same, I partly understand already why you're doing this. But maybe you can extend on that a little bit. And also, do you see alchemy as a part of the whole hermetic world? Or are those two terms interchangeable for you? Or how do they relate? What, what's, what's the difference or what's not the difference? Okay, so when we read back to very early hermetic alchemists, and these were guys who were mainly guys, but there were women as well, who were uh, practicing primarily laboratory alchemy, but also the, the ones who were esoterically inclined. They weren't just doing it for commercial reasons because some alchemists were simply interested in alchemy for commercial reasons, which mm -hmm. is how eventually in history, chemistry came about and physics. Right. Um, those early actual alchemists, esoteric alchemists, often you talked about alchemy in a way that they used phrases like, instead of calling it alchemy, they would call it the hermetic science. And by that, they meant that out of all of the Uh, various disciplines which come under the banner of hermetism, such as tarot, ritual, other forms of divination, astrology, uh, magic, all of these things that we consider to be various parts of hermetism which different people find have their own specific interests in one or other or more of those different disciplines. The old alchemists insisted that above all of these things uh, was the proper place for laboratory alchemy. And one of the reasons why they insisted upon this was because they said all of these other disciplines and all of the arts and sciences grew out of the fact that the laws of alchemy were universal and governed everything in physical reality and everything in the internal reality. And therefore, to study and understand alchemy gave you the ground bed of rules that allowed you to be able to understand other things such as astrology and ritual and so on and so forth. So that, um, ideally speaking, a person who, for example, may be interested in primarily in the study of magic, if they didn't understand the basic theory of laboratory alchemy as it could then be applied to magic, then they may be studying and practicing magic, but they wouldn't have any idea about the mechanics or the machinery behind magic that allowed magic to work because mm. of the concept that alchemical laws are the universal laws upon which everything is based. Right. Well, thank you. That, that makes it very clear. Thank you. Taking it from there, if you have a student or maybe even for yourself in earlier times, partly maybe even now, um, what is hermetic education and training for the individual and is there such a thing derived from that like a hermetic lifestyle does a hermetist or hermeticist whatever you call it does he or she um, 
live differently or is it an occupation that takes time but doesn't occupy your life but a part of it how, how do you see that what would you how would you guide a young guy who would like to get involved in that what does he have to expect so this whole question is something which I spend a lot of time talking about because it's one of the things that uh, is quite different about my view of Hermetism compared to what I call the mainstream view. And so I'll explain why I spent a lot of time talking about this and why it's a bit different by explaining how I see uh, the question that, that you've just put. And that is that most people who come to Western Hermetic study uh, probably begin with some kind of desire or understanding about spiritual self-development. And this is one reason why a lot of Westerners end up in moving towards the Eastern tradition, because the concept of spiritual self-development is very present and very obvious in the Eastern tradition that we practice mm -hmm. yoga or whatever in order to become enlightened. And that concept is talked about a lot in the East. But in the West, it's very different. While the concept of enlightenment, or what I prefer to call illumination, to define the difference between the way it's discussed and thought about in the West, um, is talked about in the Western tradition, there is a lot of confusion about it, and it's also not anywhere near as obvious in the Western tradition as it is in the East. So uh, a lot of people will begin their approach to the study of the Western tradition by thinking, I'm interested in spiritual self-development, I'm a spiritual person, I want to develop that side of my life. But when they get involved in the study of Western esoteric culture and knowledge, it is often takes quite a long time before they realize that that whole spiritual development thing is actually not happening at all that they're accumulating an enormous amount of intellectual information about things like ritual and magic and tarot, uh, astrology and things like that. And sometimes it can take half a lifetime before such individuals will stop and look at their journey in Western esoteric study and think, I'm actually not much different today than I was when I started. I just now have a lot of information about different aspects of Western Hermetism. Right. So um, this that situation is the most common situation in Western esoteric culture, and I refer to it primarily as the mainstream or popular Western occultism. Mm -hmm. The other side of it, which is more rare and less well understood, but nevertheless does exist, is the spiritual self-development side of Western Hermetism. And uh, there is very little historic information that has been recorded about uh, the kind of techniques and theory and philosophy that Westerners in the past have had about how to walk the path of spiritual self-development. And outside of 
laboratory alchemy or alchemy in general and the magical tradition, which are the two primary streams in Western Hermetism, the primary place where the concept of spiritual self-development is presented is in uh, Hermetic Kabbalah. While it's talked about there, and anyone who spends a lot of time studying Hermetic Kabbalah will realise that there's a uh, a theme of spiritual self-development there, we still come across the problem that not a lot of information is actually provided in the Western Kabbalistic tradition about practical techniques to be applied in order to properly enter the path of spiritual Mm self-development. So looking back in history, one thing we can say for sure is that while there has been a spiritual self-development theme in Western Hermetism, it has remained even up until the present the most secret side of uh, the whole Western Hermetic tradition to the point where it's very difficult for anybody who's really trying hard to piece together how to deal with that aspect of Hermetism to build up a understanding of it and particularly to build up a, a practical approach to spiritual self-development. So this is one of the unfortunate things about the Western tradition and, like I say, one of the reasons why a lot of people end up in turning to the mm-hmm. Eastern tradition. Right. Um, is that what you call in your writings and your talks uh, the underground stream as opposed to the mainstream, right? The one that you just explained, the the the, the real one, so to speak, that you would be looking for or striving for? Yeah, so, well, so the other side to mainstream or popular hermetism is like you say, what I refer to as mm. the underground stream. And the, and the right. two important things about the underground stream is accuracy of information because popular and mainstream occultism, one of the big problems it has is there's a lot of rubbish that's adhered to that tradition over the last 800 years. But the underground stream, one of the uh, most immediate and obvious things about it is that the information that it provides its students is very accurate and it works immediately. There's none of this, it can take lifetimes to achieve uh, results of any significant kind. And the underground stream results are achieved very quickly and very obviously. And you realize that you're involved in a system that is squeaky clean and very tight as far as being effective. And the other side of the underground stream is that that is the place where the secrets to Western esoteric spiritual self-development are kept or Mm. preserved and passed on. That in the past where we see glimpses in the writings of magicians or alchemists that these people were involved in some kind of internal work that was uh, focused on spiritual self-development. We know that those guys were part of that secret underground stream and none of them ever spoke or published publicly about any kind of detail at all 
except small hints that allowed people to recognise that they were involved in some deeper level of internal alchemy. Is that, uh, I think, uh, in one place you call that the unbroken line of teaching which stems back to antiquity. Uh, I made a note of that sentence. I, I think that's what you mean with that underground stream, right? Yes, the, this is a concept which is... I don't know how much people talk about today because I kind of don't spend as much time moving in circles where popular uh, culture, Western mm. occult, discuss things on a casual level now. But back when I was first involved in that level of training, the idea of that unbroken chain of transmission was kind of a reasonably common uh, phrase that was passed around. And you had two groups of people, those who absolutely did not believe such a thing existed and those who did believe it or wanted to believe it. The general idea was, though, that this was a physical transmission, entirely a physical transmission of a physical person passing on knowledge and experience to a physical student and that that um, transmission of knowledge from teacher to student went back into vast history and there's lots of arguments that that simply could not be the case and the fact is that isn't the case there is no unbroken physical transmission of knowledge that goes back into history simply because uh, um, one of the things I talk about relatively uh, regularly is how the Western tradition d during the late 1600s and the 1700s virtually died off. And so yeah. that transmission in the West almost came to a complete halt. The, what that unbroken chain means, though, is that behind the scenes, and particularly on an internal or spiritual level, that whole system and tradition, that squeaky, clean, tight, effective system is stored in the memory of the human race, basically, and is um, uh, made use of by people who have the ability to uh, shift into the internal levels and uh, make and gain access to that knowledge and information. So it's mm -hmm. always been there, and there are people who have always had the ability to tap into that information and make practical use of it. So in that way, there definitely is an unbroken tradition of a very specific, particular system of training which came out of the Middle East and into the West about eight or 900 years ago and is virtually unchanged until the present day in its uh, essential concepts and practices right um that's what some call the akasha uh, would that be that be the place to tap in if they can is that yeah is that that, that's yeah. uh from an eastern point of view when we t they talk about the akasha records most people consider mm. that as being people who are psychic being able to read those records but right. in the in the west it really doesn't happen that way what happens is a person gets to a point where they've done enough internal work where they make a connection with some form of intelligence that has yeah. access to that information and then presents it to them, passes it on mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. Just for clarification, you mentioned Hermetic Kabbalah just before as being an important part. Um, 
is that in, in your point of view, that's the Kabbalah, which in Europe, in the West has come out in, in the late 15th, 16th centuries then, right? Not the old mystical Kabbalah from the earlier times. Uh, yeah, what really happened as far as the Western Kabbalah is concerned is there were two kind of major influences which altered the way we look at Kabbalah in our time, and that is that the old Hebrew Kabbalah before the birth of Christianity was a very different thing than right. what we would today call Hermetic Kabbalah. Then early Christianity had an effect on the way we look at that old Orthodox Kabbalah and altered it to be very Christian in the beginning. And then later on, um, around the uh, late 1100s, early 1200s, when esoteric knowledge started coming in from the Middle East into Europe, that whole system changed again and old Celtic esoteric knowledge then became weighted with Middle Eastern Kabbalah and developed a whole new way of looking at Kabbalah which was right. uh, most obviously expressed in the Arthurian legends and in the Grail cycle. Mm -hmm. All of those things eventually came together to produce the kind of Kabbalah that we look at and read popular books about today and a lot of people consider that it's somehow Hebrew and or sort of orthodox but in fact it's actually not it's become very right. westernized yeah yeah okay just wanted to make that clear also thank you for saying it so clearly very interesting and inspiring I think let's take our little musical break and listen to a few minutes of piano music again this upcoming piece by George Gurdjieff and Thomas de Hartmann is one out of a long series of pieces, a cycle, so to speak, called Said. And the one we are going to hear now is called Said number 13.
Said number 13 by George Gordiev and Thomas de Hartmann. And now let's go back to Ruba Philos Salfluere and the second part of our talk. Ruba will now explain to us why we need to look at imperfection in order to attain perfection. Then we speak about the influence of the purification in the alchemical sense of the individual on the world in general. Also about Christian monastic backgrounds, etc. And Ruba will explain to us the reason and meaning of his alias. Lots of stuff still to hear. After the interview, right away, our third piece of music by Gurdjieff is an excerpt from a longer piece, which is called The Struggle of the Magicians. Don't we all know about that, do we? But now we return to Rubafilos Salfluere. There's another phrase that really jumped out uh, into, into my mind. You said that in order to attain perfection, we must be interested in imperfection. I find that a fascinating phrase. Uh, and if you can expand on that a little bit, I think it would be very interesting to know. So this is a really, really important uh, facet of the spiritual self-development side of Hermetism. And it starts off with the concept that if we are seeking uh, spiritual development for ourselves, and I think most people who are interested in Western occultism or occultism in general would agree that the concept spiritual means more pure and more perfected than mundane. So what that tells us is that the journey from being a normal person who is largely focused on and uh, embedded in the mundane world, worried about their job and their kids and their mortgage and things like that and sort of struggling to somehow get involved in occultism, and a person who is at the end of the spiritual journey, the, we must recognize that the, the most important distinction between the beginner and the person who has got near to or into the end of that spiritual journey is that the spiritual person is more pure and perfected than the person who starts out. So what that tells us is that the journey between being an aspirant or a seeker or a novice and becoming an adept or a master at the end of the journey is that some changes have to be made between being a mundane person and a spiritually developed person. And so the question then arises, what are those changes? And the answer is that the primary changes that are made on that journey are to alter the mind and behaviors of the person who is going through the spiritual journey. And we can see this, for example, and um, most obvious example is in uh, Buddhism, where people who decide to uh, become involved in the Buddhist journey 
towards illumination, that the kinds of meditations and practices that they are involved in, uh, meditations and practices which are designed to alter their internal state or their psychology. And so the journey from novice to adept or master is a psychological process, and it's one of uh, purifying the content of your mind and your behaviours and therefore the way you perceive the world. Mm -hmm. So what this means is when a teacher takes on a student in the process of spiritual self-development training, what is more important than anything else are the dysfunctions that the student has, not in how well he succeeds at the exercises that he has to practice. It's an extremely important uh, uh, different view than most people would have about training. Most people think of it as being achieving goals uh, and prizes and gaining tools, um, but it's not. The important thing is whatever is going wrong with you needs to be looked at carefully understood and then fixed because if we don't understand and fix our problems there's no way that we can become uh, more spiritually developed more pure more efficient spiritually i might be completely wrong now but isn't exactly the thing that you were just saying uh, the message partly of goethe Isn't that what Gracia is doing? I think uh, in an ideal world, when we consider things, for example, like the ancient cult of Set in Egypt, mm. we would have two groups of people today who look at that situation. Some of them would be what you would consider to be your conventional Satanists who would look at that and think <laughs> it's a path to misbehaving and to getting whatever you want by any means possible in a purely narcissistic approach to and view of the world. The other side of it is the one that I think is more accurate, and that is a cult of priests who understood that dysfunction and understanding it and then fixing it is the key to getting yourself into a better state. Because until you fix the dysfunction, you can't become better or more pure. As long as that dysfunction exists, you are a dysfunctional human being. So logically, then the most productive thing to be doing at the beginning of the journey is to look closely at the archetypes of dysfunction, which were gods, for example, like Set. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, a, a reasonably obvious example of this is in the concept of Baphomet, which was the deity that the Templars were accused of worshipping, and which a lot of people believe they got the concept of this from the Middle East, um, and that it was discovered um, in relatively recent times that the word Baphomet when the Atbash cipher of Kabbalism was applied to it, rev um, changed the word Baphomet into the 
Greek term Sophia, which means wisdom. And the lesson there was that the demon or the, the devil archetype was the opposite or reverse of the archetype of wisdom and that there's a relationship between the two of them. And that possibly the secret knowledge, for example, that the Templars possessed was how to make that transition from the dark life of a normal person entrenched in mundane existence to the wise life of the adept or master of the hermetic tradition. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, thank you. You said just before that through this path the individual would become more pure more perfect that's the, the words you used yeah um, if I translate that into a really into the hermetic laws so to speak that microcosm equals macrocosm one could also say um, that through the perfection of the individual the healing of the macrocosm of the world call it universe or our world or whatever you want to call it but the, of the bigger of the bigger part um, is initiated and eventually also concluded um, is that a concept that you would um, support uh, I don't mean at all this new agey concept of we all have to be nice and that's how we get better <laughs> I mean I mean really the, the the hermetic concept of the aim of uh, of uh, the work is in fact the healing i use that word maybe you have a better one the healing of the world um is that is that part of the path of the individual as well so this brings us back to the concept of alchemy as being the first of the hermetic sciences and the one that lays the rules down for all the rest and one of the things we have to remember about alchemy is that its goal is to produce two substances the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life and these two substances are very closely related and the important thing about the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life is that you're taking a very small potent substance and adding it to a very large quantity of gross or impure substance and that small potent substance is changing the entire nature of the large volume of impure substance mm -hmm. in other words we're projecting the philosopher's stone a tiny wee bit of it into a big crucible full of molten lead and all of that lead is changing into gold and this is the core philosophy of the alchemical tradition that alchemy as a practice internal or external is specifically designed to take to produce a small highly concentrated powerful transmutation agent that then can be applied to a larger less developed body and in a flash change the nature of that body into its highest expression so most people would understand what that concept is and mm. alchemists teach that that can be done physically with chemicals or it can be done internally with the person on a on a larger a scale on the kind of scale that you've just described what this means is that 
every individual who transforms themselves into a master alchemist, for example, then has an effect on the entire psyche of the race, what Kabbalists would refer to as Adam Kadman, um, the collective unconscious of humanity. Every individual who reaches that state of mastery, their condition then affects the evolution of the entire human race by causing us to jump up a level in how much we can think, how much we can feel, what we can produce, what we can understand, and what we're capable of achieving. And that Hermetism teaches that this is an essential part of uh, the actual mechanism of human evolution. And it's one of the reasons why the pharaohs of ancient Egypt were largely the only people who the process of initiation and spiritual self-development was focused on. Their idea was to exalt the pharaoh spiritually as much as possible so that when the pharaoh died, his soul would affect the soul of the entire Egyptian culture, basically, and preserve it and move it forward in spiritual development. And, of course, the cult of Osiris, where all of this information was taught and largely kept secret originally, was the cult, well, there was the primary cult of ancient Egypt, and that was its focus was on... Um, turning the pharaoh into a human philosopher's stone that would then affect the collective unconscious of the race. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. I have a maybe tricky question. Maybe it's not tricky for you, but uh, it could be a tricky question. Um, when we talk about hermetism, alchemy, all that we were talking now, um, of course, Ancient Egypt, Greece, etc., play an important part initially, but the whole art has been very strongly through history influenced by Christianity, and um, especially when you take Rosicrucianism and all those things, there's a big impact of Christianity in it. Um, personally, I always try to separate that maybe to an extent that is even a bit extreme in my personal case but um, because I want to to strip it off to purify the, the, the line a bit how, how do you see that western Christian influence on the art um, is it necessary is it a nuisance is it well, well, what is it to you does it exist at all I think one of the one of the first things to uh, certainly accept, be aware of and accept about this question is that a lot of people come to the study of occultism because of a rebellious attitude towards a Christian upbringing. Mm. Uh, over the years, most of the students that I have had have some degree of Christianity in their background and really one of the problems that they have is that they came to a the study of occultism simply as a way of rebelling against that <laughs> early Christian Alice, influence. 
Yeah, yeah. Mr. Crowley at the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he was a perfect extreme example. Absolutely. Absolutely. But one of the unfortunate things is that a lot of people are like that, just not to that extreme, but a, a yeah. lot of people. And then if they get to the point in their own personal journey where they reconcile themselves with that early Christian influence, often they find that they don't then don't have an interest in occultism anymore because they have no need to rebel anymore. They've um, sort of um, uh, come to a reconciliation in themselves about the influence that Christianity had on them. I, I think um, the other important aspect is once we accept the fact that there's a lot of people who try very hard to remove Christianity from their esoteric life, the reality of the situation is that if it wasn't for the early monastic tradition, we probably wouldn't have a hermetic tradition in the West today. Mm. We would probably still be clinging on to pure Christianity. I mean that in an organised um, popular sense or pagan religion to some degree. Our occultism today would probably be a mixture of early pagan beliefs. Good point, yeah. Uh, because the reason why Hermetism first came into Western culture in the first place largely was because uh, the monastic tradition brought it into Western Europe from the Middle East around the time of the First Crusades. And the funny thing about that is that it's because the monastic tradition inside the Holy Roman Empire was considered to be a bit of a rebellious child itself. The church, monastic tradition was a lot older than what we see as Catholic Christianity today. And it was also far more esoteric and far more rebellious and was also against organised religion to a greater degree. So Catholic Christianity really only tolerated the monastic tradition because it would have been embarrassing to try and get rid of it. And when occultism was first brought into Europe, it was the the monks in the monastic tradition that brought that information in and hid it and preserved it. And it was those monks who also developed the first esoteric communities and secret societies that were designed to preserve that information. Right. One of the one of the important things I personally believe about that is that all of this happened because those early monks had a very different view of Christianity than the view that we're presented today by popular organised Christianity. Hmm. The monastic view was more what we would consider today to be an esoteric view. They were more interested in meditation, they were more interested in science, the truth about reality, rather than, and they were also a small collective. They didn't believe that true esoteric knowledge and everything was, uh, uh, should be available to wider humanity, whereas that mm. really was the primary motivation for the church, was to get as many people involved as possible in, into a system that was severely dumbed down for the average person. 
whereas the monastic tradition was completely opposite to that. So I think Christianity is a, an important aspect of the Western Hermetic tradition. Um, even though today I think largely most of that has been um, purged from serious modern Western Hermetic tradition. There's not much Christianity left, and I don't think there's a need for it as such as it had been in the past, um, but the ideals of that original Christian philosophy and thinking that brought all that knowledge into Europe in the first place are still a part of the modern Western Hermetic tradition because they were part of that tradition before Christianity even came onto the scene. If we can, if we accept things, for example, like that the cult of Christianity was really just a, a later development of the cult of Osiris or the cult of Mithras, for example. They were all the same story. The priestcraft yeah. behind those things were all interested in doing the same thing that their beliefs and philosophies were pretty much the same. It was only the right. superficial level that changed, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Well, that's that's very, very interesting and a very good point. Thank you. Um, well, I'm afraid we will have to wrap up soon. I have two uh, little questions left for you, which are a bit more, well, personal in a way. Um, I would like to ask you if you could explain to our listeners uh, where your name Rubafilos, Rubafilos uh, Salfluere, comes from, what it exactly means, and um, why you chose it. I first started uh, taking using an alias online seriously uh, when I. Just about the same time I had f uh, finished studying for my degree in enology uh, and I was working for, which is wine science, and I was working for uh, my first winery during vintage. And um, one of the fortunate opportunities of um, the university that I was studying through was that students were allowed to make wine and then... Uh, put their wine into the local regional competition which so the student wines were judged alongside of the commercial wines in the industry at the same level in the same way so if you won any awards in that um, competition those awards were seen as being equal to any awards that commercial businesses had okay. won at the same time mm -hmm. so in the wine industry the um, a top award is a trophy because there's only one given out in each category in each year. And I won the trophy in my year for a red wine that I produced. And one of the important things about that for student winemakers is that immediately you get offered jobs from um, all the leading wineries in the district. They, they want you working for them. So I ended up working for um, a very big winery here who I was very interested in um, working for because of my trophy but unfortunately previous to that I had been using my birth name online and the senior winemaker for the company had 
Googled my name and had found out that I was involved in studying laboratory alchemy. So I immediately lost a very lucrative contract, employment contract with that company. And because, yeah, because the wine business is very small and close knit in New Zealand, uh, it would have been very difficult for me to probably get employment almost anywhere else in a large uh, winery in New Zealand. So at that point, I decided. I was never going to use my birth name again online and I was going to uh, stick to the, the traditional thing for the same reasons, of course, um, and use an alias. So I've used a couple of different aliases over the years and I've changed them at various times because of things that have been happening where my teaching side of my study is concerned. So I eventually um, chose the name Ruba Phyllis around... Uh, the year 2000 and it was largely simply because I just wanted a name to use online I wasn't looking for anything seriously uh, specific but the name Ruba Phyllis is made up it's both Latin and uh, French Ruba means red Phyllis means lover of and in alchemy we know that the last stage of the great work is what's called uh, the red stage the red stage yeah yeah uh, so it's a desire for or love of or um, uh, to get to the last stage of the work or for the concepts that are presented and taught and understood at the last stage of the work. Uh, okay. And the name uh, Fluer comes from French and basically means uh, a fused or flowing salt. And right. the, the reason why I chose that was because one of the biggest uh, puzzles in the study and practice of laboratory alchemy is how to uh, volatize the salt which forms the vehicle for the Philosopher's Stone. Mm-hmm. And that the secret to that is connected with the red stage of the work. So it's yeah. the, whole, the whole name basically uh, talks about the solution to achieving success in the great work thank you thank you for that explanation i wanted also to talk uh, quickly uh, yet about your books the hermes uh, paradigm paradigm sorry um volumes one and two i think were officially published at some point you're not going into that that's part of the history because it was a really sad one that they disappeared again from the market nowadays you can find a single single uh, samples of those volumes at prices up to four or five hundred dollars online um but um you at some point and it's not that far back i think it was this year in february or so you said you're still striving to finish all five volumes of of that work and at some point you will also do that are there real plans for the moment out there can we hope for those five volumes to appear in a foreseeable future or is it still far out and you can't really talk about it Uh, So the original plan was to publish five separate volumes to cover all of the aspects of the lab work and then the last volume would be on the internal work and uh, then to eventually publish all of those five volumes as a single volume. Mm -hmm. So um, since that whole process had stopped, I've been juggling around about what to do with that situation and 
personally, I would be unhappy if I didn't get the opportunity to publish the whole series because most of it has been written now. It's just a matter of cleaning it up and, you know, putting it in a presentable format. So definitely it is my intention. I don't think to publish the five volumes separately, um, but rather to compile all of them into one large volume which covers the entire um, uh, subject of alchemy where it's related to hermetism both internally and externally. But I have no idea when it's going to happen because I'm right. now so busy with trying to get the college off the ground and all that kind of thing. But Right, right. I'll come to that in a sec. But well, maybe uh, I know that there are some publishers, one of, some of the bigger publishers in this occult esoteric field who are listening to my podcast. Maybe somebody picks it up. I don't know. Um, the college, yes, just to, to wrap it up. Uh, you want to tell us a few words about the college that you just mentioned? So uh, I have been running and teaching in a small group for 30 years, which has been known as the Herodom Group since about 2002. Mm -hmm. And um, about five years ago, I started for the first time talking about Herodom's Uh, philosophy and laboratory and inner work instruction on a Yahoo group uh, email forum about five years ago because I was asked to by a group of students who are interested in alchemy. So on that forum, I published about uh, 150 essays, which covered pretty much briefly in a bit of an ad hoc way all of the theoretical teachings that whom uh, Herodom Group has been teaching its students for 30 years. Uh, that email form is kind of ground to a halt um, or largely because of my now producing podcasts on YouTube, which are covering the same subjects as the essays, but sort of in more detail. And one of the things that that has now spurred forward is for us to take the next move now and start teaching the introductory level of the Herodom Group's teachings uh, formally in a structured format online through um, an organization which we have decided to call the Herodom College. And the website that we're setting up to uh, um, provide that instruction through is herodomcollege.org, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're probably going to launch that about... Um, the end of this year or very early next year uh, start accepting students through that system <clears throat> and the idea with that is to teach the um, introductory instruction for a very small fee and that anyone who graduates from that will then be invited to take part in our serious um, Uh, advanced instruction for free 
once we and can arrange tutors for them. All right, but and you can do that from 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 anywhere in the world. So that's a base, really yes, based on the internet, or does it also need physical presence? Uh, no, it doesn't need physical presence at all. It's an on. It's a uh, web company that are right. providing an education software service for any uh, providers, content creators who want to educate mm -hmm. people like in businesses yeah. or through schools or whatever so it's a it's a interesting kind of a format and it's a self-study yeah. and you can do it at your own pace and uh, particularly the introductory stage covers everything from scratch that you need to know about the hermetic tradition and specifically about the alchemical tradition very interesting so please make sure to also let me know when it's running and and up and accepts students because i'm sure uh, there are people in the audience who would be interested and i would like to post that also on the website when when you're ready yeah great well ruba thank you so much uh, i had a great great uh, 75 minutes with you now this was wonderful um thank you for that thank you for your time and uh, thank you for the birds from lovely new zealand which we hear in the background it's really <laughs> really pleasant and uh, well um i hope this was not the last time that we spoke here on south hermes and um Uh, maybe you have a final word for our audience that you would like to, to say about your art? Um, I think if I was going to sum things up and say one last thing, it's if you come into Western Hermetism with the desire for spiritual self-development rather than just practicing magic for the sake of magic or studying laboratory alchemy just for the sake of mucking around with chemicals, if you're after spiritual development don't give up on searching for that specific um, approach to hermitism because it does exist and it can be accessed and it is just as valid as attempting to do that kind of thing through an eastern school and it's more uh, uh, intentionally designed historically Uh, to deal with uh, a Westerner's psyche than it is the Eastern system being designed specifically for an Easterner's psyche. It works better and it fits with our lifestyle better than it does trying to use an Eastern approach. So particularly don't give up on looking for that and don't be fooled just simply by mucking with magic or laboratory alchemy and then it's all very interesting but finding that you're not going to end up any better off in the end, spiritually speaking. Well, thank you for that. That was almost a statement that I could post on the Thoth Hermes website because it's exactly what I also believe in. Thank you so much, Rufilo Salfluere from New Zealand. It was great to have you with us today and good luck with Herodom, good luck with all your ventures and thank you for being with us. You're very welcome and thank you very much. Thank you.
An excerpt from The Struggle of the Magicians, music composed and written by George Gurdjieff and his friend Thomas de Hartmann, was the last of the three pieces that we heard today. I hope you enjoyed my talk to Ribofilas Salfluere today. I certainly did enjoy talking to him. More than ever, I would like to ask you to consult the show notes of this episode where I put all the links that I mentioned in the interview. The one to Ruba's YouTube channel, but also the link to the upcoming Heridom College we talk about, where you can already now put your name on the mailing list in order to be informed when the college will open. And you will find the link to his Yahoo group. Maybe Ruba will accept you there, if you are seriously interested to work on your personal development through alchemy and hermetism. Once again, I would like to thank Ruba for his time and this very inspiring talk. And this is now the end of today's episode, which was episode 7 in season 3. As always, thanks for being with us. I am already very much looking forward to the next regular episode, number 8, where I will talk to a great woman, teacher and magician, Josephine McCarthy. She is a really very important figure and especially teacher of magic and the occult through her online school, Korea. But we will hear all about it next time. The guest of episode 9. Now you know already, he or she will first be revealed to patrons of the Thought Hermes podcast on Patreon. Are you curious? Become a patron. Thank you. Also, watch out for a special episode next week presenting the Black Flame Conference which is going to take place in Montreal, Canada early October. We are going to talk briefly to several of the speakers there and to the organizer. For today, I will now say goodbye to you. Look after yourself. Do a lot of magic and live a magical life. Until next time. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.